Well, hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology out of Pittsburgh, and not to be confused with a bottomless pit, because you know what we say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm, of course, your friendly neighborhood host, seminarian, podcaster, theologian, Samson Kovach, and here with you for another edition of The Theology Pit. Now, I know I've been away for a while, sort of took the summer off, um, which I shouldn't have done, to be honest, but I had some work around the house to do, and um, you know, school is starting up for me next week, and so I at least wanted to get another theology pit on here. Now, in school, the the title of my thesis, more along the lines, is going to be this. It's going to be about idle faith, and for this theology pit, I want to talk about um, faith, and I want to do it from a paper that I wrote for my um, course I took on uh, the letter to the Galatians. The title of my paper is Christians are Pistis. Now, Pistis is a is is the root word um, for pistuo, which means you know faith, belief. It can be translated um, different ways for slightly different meanings, um, and, and you know depending on the endings and what have you. Um, now, Galatians 2.16, you have to remember that this, um, this verse in Galatians states, um, depending on the Bible that you're reading, okay, um, it, it, it's stating that in, in the New International Version, it says, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because the works of the law by the because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Now a lot of people have looked at that and said, okay, in order for us to be justified, and they usually use this synonymous with salvation. Say, in order for us to be justified, what do we have to do? Well, we have to put our faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, we have to be justified because it's by faith in Jesus Christ. It is by our faith in Jesus Christ that we are justified. Now, the argument of my thesis um, for you know whenever I, I finish my degree is going to be the based around the fact that we are not justified by our faith in Christ. And what I just read to you, you're, you're sitting there saying, how, wait, how can you say that? I'm, gonna, I'm shutting this podcast off right now. You can't say that. You just read from the Bible. That's exactly what the Bible says. Okay, here's another um, translation. It's from the New English Translation. That was the NIV, the New International Version. This is the New English Translation. It says, yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. That's worded just a little bit different. Okay? I mean, it just... It just sounds completely different. Now, some people are saying, well, that's why we need to go to the authorized version, the King James. All right, because the NIV says it's our faith in Christ in which we are justified. Okay, and that's how we're justified. The NET, New English Translation, says that it is by Christ's faithfulness 
that we are justified. Okay? The King James Version says it this, this way, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, if you've been listening to the theology pit for any amount of time, you know that this is a very central theme in the theology pit. How is one justified? How are we made right with God? Um, to be justified it's it, it, it largely the articulation of of what that means comes from um, Romans chapter four, and it means two different things that are going on. One is that you are being made right before God, meaning it's as though you've done everything perfect your entire life. You are completely perfect. You are righteous. You are made uh, right. And number two, your sins are forgiven. That's what justification means. How does that happen? Is it by you trusting in Christ, by you believing in Christ, by putting your faith in Christ? Or is it by the faith of Christ that you have this Christ faith that was given to you and that's what you exercise? So it's not your faith, but the faith of Christ is given to you. Or is it by Christ's faithfulness, his faith, what he did, not given to you, but because of it, you are declared. Um. The the issue that we have here is that if you take the latter position, that it's by his faith and his faithfulness, then what that translates over to is that if you're putting your faith or your hope in something other than God, you have committed idolatry. Now, a lot of people would say, well, no, my faith is in God and that's what justifies me. And and this is the, I mean, some people say it's splitting hairs, but this is the point. If you're, if you believe that it's your faith that justifies you, that faith has become your God. Even if you believe it is a gift from God, you are taking something that God has given you and you are trusting in it as though it is God. You are not trusting in Christ. You are trusting in what Christ provided there is there's a big difference here. So the paper I wrote about this, um, I make the argument that this is sinful for us to um, to have faith that, to believe that our faith is what justifies us. Our faith in Jesus Christ is what justifies that. That is tantamount to sin. And when I say idle faith, I don't mean ideally. I mean I D O L. Okay, an idol. We have made our faith an idol. Because what is faith? We've talked about this before on the theology pit. Uh, notitia, census, and fiducia. Notitia is knowledge. Okay, I have to know something. What do I have to know? Um, uh, a census is agreement to, assenting to. Okay, agree, agree to that you really do believe it. And um, and and uh, trust is the last part. Um, fiducia is is the trust that you notitia, census, and fiducia that you trust in it, and you will tell other people because this is where your trust is. So if those three elements, none of those three elements are Christ, none of those three elements are God, but that's what makes up faith. And if that's what your hope is in, your faith is in your faith. But 
That faith, where does that where does that come from? Where does that articulation come from? Well, go to any church website, go to any any church and ask for their statement of faith. What is their statement? What does one have to believe? And they'll usually have two different categories. They'll have what do you have to believe to be a member of this church and what do you have to believe to be a Christian? And just saying that, here's what you have to believe in order to be a Christian, meaning here's what you have to believe in order to be saved, because they're usually kind of, um, uh, uh, let's say, opaque in in what they mean by to be a Christian. There's, there's you know, to be an Orthodox Christian, you know, to an Orthodox just means right believing. So to be a right believing Christian. But what they're saying is now this faith that you have is not just in your faith, but it's in a doctrinal statement. So your hope of salvation, your hope of being made right before God and having your sins forgiven is is you putting your trust into a document that somebody wrote. That is just about equal to believing the writing on an indulgence that Martin Luther fought against, where he was like, no, this is just words on paper. This doesn't, this doesn't mean anything. It's, it's only about Christ. Okay. Um, and so my paper is going to be dealing with this concept that Luther had and that St. Augustine had called incurvus inse. You're going to hear that in this paper. Incurvus inse means to turn in on oneself. It's what sin does. It turns you in on yourself. You are just focused on yourself. And that's how we sin. And in every aspect, it's us just simply looking out for our best interest no matter what. And taking that and, and curving in, turning in on ourselves. It gets the Latin for it, incurvus inse. All right. So let me start with the paper here. And hopefully I, I got over any like any heavy things that you're that you're going to hear. In the letter to the Galatians, a central theme is understanding how faith, both our faith and Christ's faithfulness, functions in relation to our justification. There is no lack of passion or effort in the scholarly arena in regards to Pistis Iesu Christau, even though there seems to be a lack of scholarly consensus. Dr. Dan Wallace has written on this subject to the SBL annual meeting in November of 2000, reasoning for the defense of the work being done for the New English Translation Bible. Wallace stated, Quote, in 1975, when C.E.B. Cranfeld's first volume of his ICC commentary on Romans was published, he could speak of the subjective genitive view of Pistis Cristal in Romans 3.22 as altogether unconvincing. Without giving much support for this conclusion and citing only an earlier articulation of the subjective view written in 1891, unquote. Modern scholars today seem to have opinions on the proper translation of Pistis Iesu Christau as faith in Christ or faithfulness of Christ due to theological or ecclesiological implications and tend to push strongly for their presupposition instead of following the rationale of the opposing implication. When demonstrated that the subjective genitive is to be preferred over the objective genitive, the theological implications are staggering. It should not be understood that every instance of pistis should be translated homogeneously. 
But care is to be taken with understanding Paul's usage in relation to justification without conflating it with sanctification or glorification. Three implications can be gained here. A. Justification has no genesis of invocation, passive or active, within the one being justified. B. Understanding the role faith plays in justification as truly extra nos. And C. The articulation set forth by the Reformers and modern Protestant scholarly academia is to be viewed in antiquity as moving in the right direction but still advocating a merit-based works righteousness. The theological struggles to articulate faith as an action while simultaneously stating it is not an action has been the bane of Protestant scholars for centuries. Commentaries on Galatians fumble through the objective genitive in a stark contradiction, even within the same page. In William Hendrickson's New Testament commentary, Galatians, under section 5 on justification, he notes, quote, Man cannot earn it. He can only accept it as a gift. This does not reduce man to sheer passivity. It is not a tree which accepts water and minerals from the soil, light from the sun, etc., very active. So it is also with faith. It is receptive, but not passive. It is very active indeed. Unquote. In section 8, he writes, quote, He is also totally unable to perform even a single perfect deed. Unquote. Section 9 implies that the action of justification lay with human will. Quote, the invitation is that all should repent and accept the righteousness of Christ, including forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Unquote. Tension becomes obvious when compared to section 4, where Hendrickson states, quote, Justification rests not on human works, not even on faith as a work of man, but solely on God's sovereign grace in Jesus Christ. Unquote. And continues with stating that this alone is the, quote, legal basis upon which man's justification becomes both possible and actual, unquote. From Hendrickson, we can deduce that the intent of justification is made possible so we might exercise actively a passive faith, which we are unable to do, but we must do so that we should repent and accept the righteousness of Christ for our justification to be an actual justification. Contradictory theological double-talk is found in the majority of articulations where the objective genitive of pistis Christau is insisted upon in regards to justification. Bruce McCormick states, The reasoning for favoring faith in Christ is that, quote, What is clear in all of this is that construal of pistis Christau as a subjective genitive is doing a lot of heavy lifting here, unquote, and that, quote, the subjective genitive is simply too controversial to obtain ecclesial standing. It is an interesting proposal, but nothing more, unquote. In light of Wallace's observation and the obvious obfuscation, obfus- 
look, I can't even read my own words, obfuscation of the role of faith's relationship to justification, a closer examination of Paul's articulation from the perspective of the subjective genitive is warranted. How one is justified is the central theme of Galatians based solely on the faith of Christ in and through believers, always to the benefit of another. So let me break down that first section for you that I just read. I realized there was a lot in there and, you know, you're probably tripping over some of this stuff. What is subjective genitive? What is objective genitive? The genitive is the um, is the noun. Um, it, it is the person. Um, in in this case, um, with uh, Christow, it is in the um, the 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 genitive uh, singular masculine form, and um, pistis before it is actually uh, pistuo in in. Um, uh, two sixteen in Galatians two sixteen, um, or pastuos. Um, there is no um, uh, date of iota subscript, but uh, with uh, underneath the um, the omega within that uh, pastuos, um, which then makes it translated. It, it keeps it within its um, genitive form. Now, what the genitive form means is simply this: whenever you see this ending on on Christuo, Okay, which was is spelled in, in the English C H R I S T O U. Um, what that means is that it you put the word of before it. Okay, so it helps to modify the word before it. Um, so you would read that as uh, pistuo would be uh, faith, and then Christau, faith of Christ. A lot of people just say Christ's faith, but it's faith of Christ. That is probably the most basic, literal translative meaning for it. Now, within this genitive, you do have an understanding, is it a subjective genitive, which means the word that is modifying the noun, pistos in this case, this faith, is it the subject's faith? Okay, that's the subject genitive. So, is it Christ's faith, or is it the objective genitive? Is it the object of Christ's that is it, which would be us, which would be our faith. Um, what I'm arguing for here is that it is, in the sense, better thought of as the faith of Christ, the subjective genitive. Now, the end of um, this section that I read, uh, Bruce McCormick, uh, his reasoning for favoring the objective genitive, it's your faith in Christ here, is because, quote, what is clear in all of this is that construal of pistis cristal as a subjective genitive is doing a lot of heavy lifting here. The subjective genitive is simply too controversial to obtain ecclesial standing. It is an interesting proposal, but nothing more. Now, what he means, it's too controversial to abstain ecclesial standing. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. And when, when we talk about um, an ecclesial standing, that means bringing together uh, the different denominations. Um, if, you, if you stick with the objective genitive, faith in Christ, it's something that you are doing, okay, that from what God has given you in order for you to be justified. This helps open the door with uh, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and anybody else that believes in um, a 
let's say a progressive justification or a progressive sanctification where it is it's a sanative understanding it is that god does something to you that then enables you to do something to apprehend what he has given okay the difference between that view and the protestant view is the let's just say for generic reasons the roman catholic view is that through the life of the church baptism confirmation communion um you know marriage um uh holy unction or last rites um what else would be in there confession uh those those sort of things um that is grace that is being given to you that is being poured into you changing you and you know, through that, you are then able to grab a hold of this justification that's being offered to you. You are, it's a, it's a present action. You're grabbing hold of it. This Protestant view here, largely, is that we are saying that, no, God gives you this faith that then it's this faith in Christ that if you exercise, that if you do this, then you can grasp that justification. It's the same mechanism. It's just two different ways of going about it. It's God doing something, doing something to you, or some better said, something being done to you, and then um, you have the responsibility to respond, response-able, responsible, uh, to respond to this. And by doing that, that is what saves you. What the subjective genitive does is says no it's by Christ's faith alone it's you are being declared just and righteous it has nothing to do with your faith you don't have the faith that can do that this is completely separate from that that a lot of protestant denominations will not tolerate that kind of wording and the roman catholics and Orthodox most certainly would not tolerate that kind of wording it would completely destroy any um discussions or movements towards um you know a, a ecclesial unity that may be happening so what bruce mccormick is saying is that um, we just we should just favor the objective genitive that it's something that we do by by trusting in our faith and having our faith in Christ because if we go in this other direction not even entertaining whether or not that's biblical or right but if we go in this other direction it's going to disrupt you know hundreds of years of conversation between um, Protestants and uh, Catholics I find that to be ridiculous that that that's that that's the reasoning but this is what he gives and this is why i'm i'm pushing in favor of this and, and writing uh in this perspective because um i really don't care what it disrupts i mean there's a lot of people that don't want to agree with me that i've spoken to but they don't exactly know how to disagree because what i'm saying is is that you know it's christ alone Okay, it's Christ's faith. Christ is who I trust in because of his faithfulness. That's how I am able to trust in him. Because he has justified me, I am able to have faith in Christ. That's what I'm saying. And people do not want to argue against that. But at the same time, I get accused of, well, how do you not be a universalist? I mean, doesn't God just declare everyone? And that's that's an ecclesiological understanding that, you know, I would have to take you through my paradigm. Um, but I want to get to the second um, section of my, my paper here. So the second section I, ha I have is titled as um, Faith as Incurvescence. Now, this again means, you know, curving in on oneself. It's, 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 
taking sin. It, it is, you know, the sinful act that we have of just, you know, being selfish more or less. Okay. The intent of faith is never for the benefit or glory of the one expressing that faith. Faith, as demonstrated by Paul, is for another by fidelity in Christ. Within justification, this faith should function for the faithfulness of others and toward God alone. He is worthy of this perfect Christ faith. Our focus on this example should be that of Christ, as Paul states in Galatians 2, 16 and 17 here from the Net Bible. We know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Jesus Christ so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ... We ourselves have also been found to be sinners. Is Christ then the one who encourages sin? Absolutely not. Now, I include verse 17 here because of how closely Paul relates the possible misconception that may occur in our thinking that our seeking or act of will is the determining factor. The moment we abuse the understanding of faith as the means on our behalf, we sin and how Martin Luther describes sin with Augustine. Quote, Scripture, Luther tells us, describes man as so curved in upon himself that he uses not only physical but even spiritual goods for his own purposes, and in all things seeks only himself. Unquote. Incurvus insay is the debilitating ability the church has to greedily clutch a gift from God given for the good of another and dispense that gift if and when we desire and to what degree for our own self-interest. The danger of turning faith into a work, not by, done by us, not done to us, but by us, is to put the action in our will and not in the will of God alone. Thomas Soding articulates Paul's faith as, quote, to trust in God, to be sure of his promises, to be convinced by his word, and to be obedient to his will. These form the very essence of faith. Otherwise, faith would not be faith. The heart of his justification thesis is a common confession. We believe in Christ Jesus, unquote. The understanding that we are justified by our own faith, even a faith gifted to us, is the type of self-serving sin that Luther and Augustine identify. It is also a function of faith within justification that Paul is trying to have the Galatians understand and reject. A motivation towards God as a means through ourselves was a concern of Luther by, quote, the way that we think we are humbly serving God in prayer, in service, in ministry to others, but in fact are trying to prove something to God, unquote, as if we needed to do something in order for God to respond positively to us. At this point, our faith is no longer in Jesus Christ for our justification. Rather, our faith is in our faith. Luther struggles with this concept in his commentary on Galatians, where he takes hold of the gift of faith for selfish ambition to merit God's favor. 
Quote, here is to be noted that these three things, faith, Christ, exception or imputation, must be joined together. Faith taketh hold of Christ and hath him present and holdeth him enclosed as the ring doth a precious stone. And whosoever shall be found having this confidence in Christ apprehended in the heart will him will God accept for righteous. This is the mean and this is the merit whereby we attain the remission of sins and righteousness, unquote. The Augsburg Confession states in Article 4, quote, They also teach that man cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merits, or works, but are freely justified for Christ's sake, through faith, when they believe that they are received into his favor, and that their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake who by his death has made satisfaction for our sins, this faith God imputes for righteousness in his sight, Romans 3 and 4, unquote. When the emphasis Luther has is based in the one who is justified, it becomes easier to see why the Council of Trent responded the way that it did. Quote, Moreover, it must not be maintained that they who are truly justified must needs, without any doubt whatever, convince themselves that they are justified, and that no one is absolved from sin and justified except that he believes with certainty that he is absolved and justified, and that absolution and justification are affected by this faith alone, as if he who does not believe this doubts the promises of God and the efficacy of the death and resurrection of Christ, unquote. And that's from chapter 9 of the Council of Trent. An attitude of confidence in something is how one is justified in Luther's view. I realize this is the equivalent to reform blasphemy for me to say, for me to make such a claim. So, before the obliquy begins... Luther himself stated as much, quote, But to him that believeth, sin is pardoned, and righteousness imputed. This truth and this confidence maketh him the child of God and heir of his kingdom, unquote. From this moment on, we have a large amount of ink spilled to defend a defenseless concept, one that is not represented by Paul, Protestant, and Reformed Christians will agree that, this, that it is not us who merits justification, but they seem to insist that we merit the justification that has been merited for us. In F.F. F. Bruce's commentary on the Greek text of Galatians, he too takes note with Wallace of Cranfield's position, but favors an objective genitive reading. Quote, C.E.B. Cranfield, Romans um, 203, briefly dismisses the subjective genitive as altogether unconvincing and, uh, quote, unquote, and continues the defense. Quote, Arbulman points out that Pistis Christaliesu is tantamount to believing that Jesus died and rose. Paul never defines faith. The nature of faith is given in the object to which faith is directed. Faith always means faith in or faith that. Faith in, one should say, as well as faith that. It is the personal faith 
that unites one to Christ, along with all fellow members of the New Covenant community, all those who, in Paul's idiom, are in Christ. Unquote. Bruce continues with this line of thought, leading to an understanding that Paul is arguing against believing in legalistic works in favor of believing in our faith in Christ. Claiming that Paul's problem with the agitators in Galatians is that they believe in X capitalized as opposed to believing in X lowercase. It would seem evident that neither capital X nor lowercase X can justify, but only Christ alone. However, Luther's influence is so strong traditionally that this would lead Bruce to create an unusual translation of Acts 15.11. Quote, Through the grace of our Lord Jesus, we believe so as to be saved, just as they do. Unquote. Many other scholars agree with this articulation, and the wording is similar in that the action or effort is located within the one who is to be justified, as evidenced with M.F. Sadler. Quote, For what did God send his Son amongst the Jews? In order that through faith in him they might be justified. Unquote. In support of the objective genitive within justification, faith will always be defended and maintained as incurvus in say. So what I'm saying in this section is that there are a lot of people from Luther to today that are so married to this concept of my faith and I have to believe, because to be honest, it's something that we can control, it's something that we can measure in other people as well in ourselves. If I believe the right things, if I say the right things, if I'm convinced of the right things, I will be justified. It makes it makes Christ merits that he did apply to me. That's how I gain them. That's how I gain my justification through Christ's faithfulness. This is taking something that was given and curving in on yourself and being selfish with it. And because this tradition is so strong, and there really has been very little public push against it, is why I'm I'm making this my my career work, it would seem, at least so far. I mean, we're spending the next couple of years developing this topic here. So let's move to the next section. Christ's faithfulness is our faithfulness. We know that our salvation is not based on works that we do. And that is stressed all the more with the understanding of justification as Paul defines it. In light of the last section, with the desire to use faith in a selfish manner, we need to focus our attention on the proper meaning of faithfulness within the soteriological framework of justification alone. In Pauline thought, within the, Christ, within the Christ event, there is a creative agency that must be recognized. We will perceive our meaning from Romans 4, 5 and verse 17. Without attempting to force an understanding back into Galatians, complementary themes Paul uses in his body of work will assist us in the way we approach Christ's faithfulness to us and through us. God calling things into existence is not a new concept. 
It is a defining characteristic and method used throughout the Bible. Starting with Genesis, we read of God speaking into existence that which does not exist as though it does. What God declares is not only true and real, but also good. Through saying, declaring, promising, or calling, the same results occur, and that is the finality of the reality that is God. John refers to Jesus as the Logos, John 1.1. And this word itself already carried with it the connotation of divine, creative, and organizational power within Stoic philosophy. It is no surprise that Paul utilizes this attribute when describing justification. Quote, But to the one who does not work, but believes in the one who declares the ungodly righteous, his faith is credited as righteousness. Unquote. Romans 4, 5. And, quote, The God who makes the dead alive and summons the things that do not yet exist as though they already do. Romans 4, 17b. Unquote. It is not too far removed to say that this is what Paul has in mind when speaking of God's justification of the Galatian believers through the faithfulness of Christ. Creation is seen as unified cooperation within Trinitarian theology early in the church's life and Paul's letters. In regards to calling and grace, Ori McFarlane suggests that, quote, Paul's experience should be interpreted primarily with that of his church's experience of divine creation, unquote. McFarlane argues that grace has two distinct but similar meanings in Galatians. The first is that God's calling will manifest in the new creation of the one called and then through the one called. Quote, in Galatians, God's grace is primarily and most fundamentally the gift of Christ, the gift without which there are no other gifts. Unquote. A logical thread can then be followed from Christ's faithfulness to Paul. Paul's faithfulness is that of Christ's faithfulness to the Galatians. The Galatians' faithfulness is that of Christ's faithfulness to others. The other's faithfulness is that of Christ's faithfulness to us. Our faithfulness is that of Christ's faithfulness to be given not to ourselves, but to others. The reason is for freedom, Galatians 5.1, and love, Galatians 5.22-23. With pistis, as translated properly in the subjective genitive, for the benefit of others, not for ourselves. McFarland states this, quote, letter begins, sorry, I said that badly. McFarland states that this, quote, letter begins with Paul's invocation that the Galatians receive grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, where a single apo governs both God and Jesus as the unified source of the gifts, unquote to which I would claim remains unchanged throughout history. Only through the concept of Pistisiesus Christau, understood in the subjective genitive as the faithfulness of Christ or Christ's faith, does the continuity of Paul's justification understanding keep with the biblical modus operandi of God. 
Along with the understanding of the creative element, there is also the biblical understanding of God as the one who is faithful. Jesus, God incarnate, would operate in the same way as faithful and whose faithfulness is equal to that of God. The understanding should default to the Old Testament concept of God's faithfulness, as we see throughout the Psalms, namely Psalm 573, 67.3, 77.22, 86.15, and 89.8, and in relation to Israel. Quote, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Unquote. Exodus 34, 6 and 7a. Paul echoes this attribute in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, saying, This is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, since he cannot deny himself. Unquote. The hope of salvation in both testaments rests on God's righteousness, faithfulness, and creative calling. Christ is holy, and so we are holy as we are in Christ. 1 Peter 1.16 and Leviticus 11.44-45 state, state this reality and recognize the faithfulness of God through the faithfulness of Christ. N.T. Wright translates Galatians 2.16, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. So we came to believe in the Messiah, Jesus, so that we might be justified by the faithfulness of the Messiah and not by the works of the law. Unquote. Wright further states, quote, In response to the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah, Paul declares in 2.16b that this is why we too believed in the Messiah Jesus, so that we might be declared righteous on the basis of the Messiah's faithfulness and not on the basis of works of the Jewish law, unquote. Martinius C. DeBoer advocates for a subjective genitive strongly supported by Galatians 3.22-25. In 3.22, Paul refers once again to the faith of Jesus Christ, as he does in 2.16a. In the verses that immediately follow 3.23-25, Paul speaks of faith, pistis, in a personified way as a virtual synonym for Christ, 324. Faith came onto the world stage and at a certain juncture in time, 323 and 25, as Christ himself did, 319. Faith is not here an intrinsic human possibility or even a human activity. Faith functions as a metonym for Christ. Faith here is thus something that belongs to or defines Christ himself, unquote. Douglas Moo, who would object to the subjective genitive, admits this is a strong argument, quote, 
quote. Of course, if the genitive construction at the end of verse 22 is construed as subjective, then the faith in verse 23 will refer to the faith faithfulness exercised by Jesus Christ. And to be sure, this opening clause in verse 23 constitutes perhaps the strongest single exegetical point in favor of this interpretation, unquote. Two further pieces of evidence DeBoer highlights are worth mentioning. One, if Paul, quote, if Paul wanted to say faith in Jesus Christ, he would have used an expression such as pistis ice Christon, found in Colossians 2, 5, corresponding to the verbal construction pistuen, ice, believe in, in Galatians 2, 16b. The formulation pistis iesu Christau it has an exact parallel in Pistis Abraham in Romans 4.16. The latter undoubtedly means the faith of Abraham, not faith in Abraham. Also, 4.12, the faith of our father Abraham, unquote. By Paul personifying faith as Christ, we are to understand what this implies for the body of Christ, i.e. the church. Our fiduciary responsibility is to bring the faithfulness of Christ to others for justification as we have been called to do. So this section here, I think I've, uh, I've demonstrated why we should be favoring this as Christ's faith. So I'm just going to move on. I don't think I need any explanation more for that, and I don't want to run out of time here either. So the next section is called The Deficiency of Human Will in Initiating God's Promise. The tendency we have to want to motivate God to look favorably on us is one issue that Paul is dealing with in Galatians. With the Christ event came the temptation to want to work differently to gain favor with God. Circumcision was the catalyst in the letter, but we see it was more deep-rooted as an attitude of misconception of how one is justified. The sin of commission that leads away from the merits of Christ's faithfulness is just as wrong as the sin of omission by thinking that abstaining from something that gives the appearance of merit will then gain favor with God. Even with the promised declaration of God, our attitude toward the necessity of our cognitive disposition toward a given state is missing the mark, because the locus is Christ. To illustrate this point, Paul uses the analogy of Sarah and Hagar in Galatians 4, uh, verse 22 through Galatians 5.1. Abraham and Sarah were given a promise by God that they thought they must do something to grasp what God had declared, much like a ring doth a precious stone. Moo rightly points out, quote, Paul contrasts the manners of birth of the two sons, the one, Ishmael from the slave woman, Katasarka, uh, according to the flesh, the other, uh, Isaac, the f- from the free woman. Okay, D. Epiga, um, I'm going to mess this all up. Epa, epinagalias. Okay, epinagalias. I'm just tripping right over it. Through the promise. Okay, so one is from the promise, you know, from the slave woman, the other is through the promise. Unquote. This is not to be understood as God foretelling what will happen, but causing it to happen in a way outside of human desire or will. 
Quote, Isaac was born in conjunction with or as a result of the promise. Unquote. Paul equates Ishmael with the works of the law, the results of human will within the promise of God. The Jerusalem above is not of human will, but of God's faithfulness. Quote, and any Christian would readily identify the resurrection of Christ as that life-giving event, unquote. Mu accurately, uh, Mu articulates this truth nicely. Quote, Ishmael's birth, according to the flesh, suggests that he was born in the natural way and by the power of human decision. In contrast, then, Isaac's birth, according to the Spirit, would be a birth characterized by the work of the Spirit, which may, in this context, mean took place by the power of the Spirit, unquote. Paul stresses that within God's declarative promise, our will does not and cannot bring that reality to fruition. Only his faith and faithfulness can merit justification on our behalf, and only he can rightly declare our righteousness. My conclusion. In Galatians, we find clear evidence of how Paul intends faith to be understood. Christians, as the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, possess the faithfulness of Christ that has merited justification independent of us. Interpreters from Martin Luther on have struggled to maintain a clear distinction between human effort and Christ's faith within justification. Observations made in regards to our faith should be under sanctification. I have argued that our faith is insufficient for justification due to man's sinful nature and the separation it can cause for believers to rely on their active faith rather than on Christ. Galatians sits comfortably with all given revelation in that God is faithful, Christ is faithful, and therefore Christians are faithful. Um, I'm thinking about posting this to the website, uh, but I want to do it in a format so that you can see all of my, all the works that I used, all my citations, all my footnotes, um, and uh, kind of walk through uh, all of that if you want to, you know, double check me on it. Now, given I know some stuff, of course, is a seminary paper, so a lot of it's very, very heady, but I only had 4,000 words to work with on, on this one. That was my limit, including footnotes. So that's what I that's what I try to do. There were other sections that I wanted to put in that I I, I left out um, that I found interesting. But um, the point that I'm making here is that if you say or you hear somebody say things like um, saving knowledge, uh, a saving faith, and they're talking about your faith or a personal faith that that was justifies you, I'm saying that that is idolatry. I'm saying that that's sin. And now you, I, I understand how this can be such a, a harsh reactionary uh, you know, thing. I mean, people, you hear that, and I mean, I mean, th- this bucks five hundred years of, of of tradition. And my my understanding is that either the reformers couldn't articulate what they were talking about, couldn't articulate it properly, at least. Um, 
I don't think that that's true because anytime that they were challenged on this, I mean, they may have gotten the wording a little, a, a little wrong, but that wasn't their intent because anytime I see it challenged, they are constantly saying, uh, no, 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 it's not by your faith. It's by God's grace. It's not by your faith. But you have to, well, you have to ask them, well, what do you mean by my grace? What are you saying there? Um, Melanchthon, for example, he was um, Martin Luther's um, sort of right-hand man, um, a wonderful Greek scholar, and uh, he, you know, said about um, you know faith alone in Christ alone that he wishes that that wasn't the kind of catch-all phrase because it makes people think that it's by their faith alone and not by God's grace and God's grace and and Christ is where we should be going to. I'm paraphrasing that, of course. Um, and so, from what I've been told, and I have to do research on it, the Scottish reformers uh, started moving in this direction. So, I'll be uh, doing a lot of research there and, and reading that. I've talked to quite a few scholars and pastors that have said, yeah, you really need to look into that. Uh, they may be going, uh, it, it, they may be helpful for you in that sense. Um I've been blessed to have uh, a lot of lunches and meetings with some very uh, smart people, some uh, some wonderful uh, scholars in the Christian community in the area, and, and and bounce this idea off of. And I'll be meeting with the um, chair of the department to uh, put together my thesis portfolio here and um, and, and apply. I'm going to be using this paper for it. Um, and if, if it's accepted, if the topic is um, you know, understood and I express that I've, I've done my research on it and that I understand it and I can go forward on it, um, it'll go up for academic review. And the academic review should come back good because my um, you have to have a, a B average or better um, to uh, get into the thesis program. And I'm at a, a 375. So I'm at you know a low A average because um, I, I got A minuses in uh, you know, all my classes last semester. So I, I, I qualify, you know, in, in those regards. And then um, in the spring, I will be in a, um, a thesis writing class, which is a pass-fail class. Um, and if I pass it, I will come out of there with my, um, my thesis statement. Um, and then I will be able to then spend, um, yeah, two semesters, uh, researching and writing on the exact point of that topic. And, and I, you really have to narrow it down with, with these. And I'll have the opportunity then to write, I think, roughly an 80-page um, thesis. Um, I'll have two semesters to do it, and then I will defend it. And if I can defend it... Um, well, if I can defend it properly, uh, I guess or just, or just I guess just defend it. Then um, I will um, graduate. I will get my, my my degree, my Master of Arts in Religion in uh, Christian History and Systematic Theology. And from there, um, you know, hopefully, I'll apply for the um, Sacred Theological Masters, and we'll see you know, what what goes from there. Um, so that's that's kind of the plan for this. But when I when you, when you talk to people about this, as you can see, it's very difficult for any of this to say, well, I reject that. I mean, if I say to you why I believe that I'm uh, justified by the faithfulness of Christ alone. Well, who argues that? Well, a lot of people would say, you know, I mean, no one's going to say, well, no, it's not by Christ alone or it's not by like, I mean, the wording they may trip up on. But if they say, well, isn't it by your faith? Um, one of the um, professors that I talked to, uh, Dr. Um, Robert Frazier, I had, I had lunch with him this past week, a brilliant um, professor at Geneva College. And um, 
he is is working on a uh, either a book or, or something on um, the uh, Noahic effect of sin, which is the effect of sin on the immaterial part of man, the cognitive part, the the thinking part. And, um, Noahic comes from uh, gnosis, which means um, you know knowledge. Um, so you know and. And so that's why, you know, I kind of bounced it off him. I said, do we even have the, the capability of even having the proper type of faith? And I don't think so. And I kind of went back to Anselm's Credeus Homo that we need to have a, you know, it has to be a perfect faith that can merit justification, a perfect faith. And even a faith given to us, we screw it up even after it's given to us. So, yeah. Uh, therefore it wouldn't be any good, but the type of faith that is perfect, that could merit justification is the type of person with that faith that would never need justification. So that's the whole point of Christ. He came and merited it for someone else, which means that this faith that we received is not a faith for us. It's a faith for somebody else by nature. I mean, by, by definition, that's what this type of faith that we're talking about is. Um, and so because of this, um, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable uh, it certainly messes up a lot of statement of faiths. Um, it, 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 it bucks a lot of confessions, popular confessions out there, um, because, you know, I, I feel that their terminology is a little off and sends you in that direction. I pretty much asked two questions um, when looking at this. And, you know, you can, as you're evaluating your own beliefs and as you're evaluating things from, you know, uh, from listening to this podcast and now on, kind of ask yourself these two questions while you're reading through a church's statement or on, on salvation. Number one, where does the action take place? Does it take place in me or does it take place in God? That's number, that's number one. Number two, um, is this something that I am using selfishly that I am looking towards other than Christ. Those are the two things. So if someone's presenting something to you and saying, believe this, and that thing that they've placed in front of you is not Jesus Christ at all. If they say, no, it's a gift that Jesus gave you. So I trust in that gift, the gift that you've just articulated for me. That's an idol. It's idolatry. Nope. It's Christ alone. It's all it is. It, everything is Christ. But you have to have faith. I, I do have faith, but not to be justified. Christ's faithfulness did that. I have faith within sanctification. I am being sanctified by my faith in Christ. It's not justified by my faith. So those are your two things. Where does the action take place? And is it something other than Christ? Those are your two things. If you can say, no, I'm justified by the declaration that God has made. He declared me to be righteous. And I can say that whatever that declaration was, that I am not looking elsewhere for that to be a reality. Hey, I'd like to thank you for listening to the theology program. Um, be sure to um, you know continue making donations. I really appreciate those. Um, if there's a topic that you'd like me to maybe comment on, um, you know, shoot me an email, Samson at SamsonStick.com. You can leave a message on Facebook at you know the Theology Pit. Uh, visit us at SamsonStick.com. Um, 
when I start seminary up, um, the courses that I'm going to be taking, I'm going to be taking, you know, early church history. I'm going to be taking, um, Greek one. I'll be taking a survey of the old Testament and, um, and, um, uh, God, the father, uh, a systematic theology course. Um, I can't guarantee that I will get to the topic. Um, I can't guarantee that I'm going to have a lot of topics or a lot of time to do this, but what I certainly want to do is I want to try and get, you know, a, a couple of these out every month if possible, you know, just to kind of sit down and decompress while I'm trying to you know, memorize my noun endings and verb endings um, and, and just, you know, talk this out. So thank you very much for listening. And now it is definitely time for me to close down the pit. Thank you. Thank you.